Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. It's time for episode 29, and this week we'll be talking about traveling during COVID times because they're not going away. We're going to talk about the importance of good grounds. I will explain a tale from the road involving a boat ramp, a product review of the Dometic 970 2.6 gallon chemical toilets, and a resource recommendation that I am super excited about. Hi folks, welcome back. Thank you once again for listening. Hey, just a reminder, we are in uh, week two of our contest here. So last week I announced I have a contest. I'm going to give away a solar controller. It's a nice PWM solar controller suitable for smaller systems, brand new, in the box, ready to go. It's really actually a nice one. I was looking at it and I was like, geez, maybe I should have just used this instead of getting the MPPT controller that I did. But done is done. It's installed. I'm moving on. So it's yours. The only thing you have to do to enter is send me an email to jeff at built2go.com. There's two T's in built2go, not one, not three, two T's in built2go. And in that email include an interesting story, tip, tidbit, fact, anything you would like that I will find interesting and worthy of including in the show and your mailing address. Every single person that enters will get a hook, walk a bang sticker which is explained at the Built to Go site, and a chance to win this. And basically, the person who's going to win is the person who sends me the most interesting thing. And I've already received some, so the pressure is on. And thank you to everyone who has already entered. The contest will close July 7th, 2020. So if you're listening to this in the year 2025, ah, go ahead. Send me an email anyway, and I'll at least get you a sticker. So I need to get out... My home office is in a basement, which, you know, I live in a small house in Chicago and there just isn't space for me to have an office upstairs. So I've kind of moved into the basement, which is spacious, but it's still a basement. It's, it's not finished. I'm basically sitting at a desk next to a concrete wall with literally a shower curtain behind me for a wall. It's very fancy. I know. I'm, I'm sure you imagined me in much better digs, but Hey, <laughs> this is kind of nice. And It ties into van life a bit because I have learned to be comfortable with less ever since I started traveling in a van, and my office is kind of part of that. In fact, I don't look at it as an office. I look at it as a lab. So there's like half-done experiments all over the place, and there's a pinball machine that needs to be fixed, and there's a 3D printer that needs to be fixed, and there's all this stuff down here. And because it's a lab, I'm cool with it. So I have adjusted my expectations of what my office should be. And because of COVID, and because of the fact that COVID is not going away anytime soon, especially if you're in the U.S., where we are now a pariah nation, according to the rest of the world, we're basically trapped in our own country and can't go anywhere because we have done such a poor job of handling this, that travel is kind of frowned upon. We're being asked to stay home. And while I tend to think that's a good idea, I think van life folks are in a unique position to travel responsibly during this time. And that's what I intend to do. So I thought I'd share my story of my plans of what I'm going to do next week. And maybe you can get some ideas about what you could do to safely enjoy yourselves and your travels this summer, especially if you're in the United States. There are many places I would really like to go, but Many of the places I would really like to go are very popular. 
And this is not a time to go to popular places. So what I've done is I looked at the map and picked a spot of the country I haven't spent much time in. And I've decided I'm going to go there and find interesting stuff. So this is the thing about having the van. You get to plan a lot less. You don't have to plan where your next meal's coming from because it's in your van. You don't have to plan where your next hotel room's going to be because it's in your van. The only thing you really have to worry about is where you're going to park. And ultimately, that is a fairly simple problem to solve, especially if you get away from cities where the people are. So we're in really good shape if we follow this strategy. So my plan is, I'm going to, drum roll please, North Dakota. And why am I going to North Dakota? Because I have not spent that much time in North Dakota. I have been there twice, but only recently. I didn't go there for the first time until I was 50 years old. It was the 49th state that I visited. South Dakota was the 50th. And I'm going to South Dakota later in the year for another planned trip. So that was off the book. So I know everyone's saying, oh, go to the Badlands. Yeah, I get it. The Black Hills. I know. I'm doing that later. Now I'm doing North Dakota. Some of you may be thinking, North Dakota? What the heck is there to see in North Dakota? Well, the answer is, and I will state this very plainly, there's North Dakota stuff to see in North Dakota. It's stuff you can't see anywhere else. And if you have the right mindset, it's just as wonderful as anything else you're going to see. And so here's what I've done. I went through my go-to sites for finding interesting things. Atlas Obscura, atlasobscura.com, disclaimer, I used to work for them uh, years ago. Great site for finding interesting things to see anywhere in the world. And then also Roadside America at roadsideamerica.com. A different take on things, much older than Atlas Obscura, and it's a little bit more crowdsourced and a little bit more inclusive than Atlas Obscura. But also the stuff is not necessarily as high quality as everything that's in Atlas Obscura. There's a different level of vetting. That said, I actually use the Roadside America app an awful lot to find where I'm going. And I have found some really weird, interesting stuff in North Dakota. One of the things is a pyramid, this massive pyramid that cost $6 billion to build, apparently, in the mid-70s. And uh, I'm not going to tell you about that. I'll save that for another episode, but I am going to go visit that. I might also go to a place called Devil's Lake, which, as you would suspect with a name like Devil's Lake, would have a, a story behind it. And it, it does have a story, one that's rather poignant for today's times. And I'm going to go see some, some petroglyphs. Um, I, I really like petroglyphs. It's, it's one of my favorite things to see. It's, it's, a, it's like a love letter from the past. At least that's how I see it. This is somebody wrote something down and you get to see it. It's, it's tr a transference of data from the past to the present. It's just kind of a magical thing. And there are some really interesting petroglyphs in the Fort Ransom area of North Dakota. And I'm going to go check those out. And I'm also just going to sit there and do nothing. I am going to turn the computer off, park somewhere where there's no cell phone service, and just sit, listen to the birds, listen to the grass, listen to whatever happens to be around me and just experience North Dakota. 
And I think you can do the same. And I know many of you are already doing this. You hear me saying this and you're like, well, what the hell does he do? That's what we always do. And good for you. That's right. This is something we can do. But for the others of you who travel in a van and think, Yosemite, Yellowstone, the Grand Canyon, maybe this isn't that time. Maybe this is the time to go to that place that you've never thought you would ever go before. And at times in my life when I have done this, I have always found something interesting and memorable. And my best example of this is I was stuck for two days in Texarkana, knew nothing about Texarkana, drove into town, and the first thing I saw was a giant building with the word grim written on it. I thought, oh, what am I going to do here? And then I found the Ace of Clubs house, which was a wonder, one of my favorite places I've ever visited in the country. And I realized that there's stuff everywhere. I found the Ark and Texarkana, and you can too. Now, all that said, here are the precautions I'm taking that are a little bit different from the ones I would take if I were just going on a regular trip. First off, I'm definitely going to have enough food in the van, so I will always cook in the van. I'm not going to go to restaurants. I'm not going to do fast food. All right, I might do drive through once in a while, but I'm going to try to avoid that. So more food in the van, more water in the van. I'm not only going to have my regular six gallons of fresh water, uh, well, six gallons of regular fresh water and three gallons of drinking water. I'm probably going to bring a couple more gallons just to be safe. And a big change is that I am going to use the toilet that is in my van a lot more often. I typically only use it for emergencies, and I will try to use rest areas, gas stations, things like that. But from what I'm reading, especially in busy areas, restrooms are not the greatest place right now to avoid COVID. Avoiding COVID is a, is a two-way street. I'm not only trying to keep myself healthy, I'm also trying to keep others healthy because for all I know, I have the virus. I've never been tested. I don't know, I might have it and I don't want to transmit it. So I will be avoiding public restrooms. And also, of course, I'm going to wear a mask every time I get out of the van and there are people around. When I go to pump gas, which is something I'm going to have to do, I will be wearing a mask and gloves while I'm pumping gas. And I do have a liberal supply of hand sanitizer and, and a sink and soap. I can wash my hands anytime I want. So all things considered, I think I can do this trip, which will be somewhere around a week. I think I can do this trip and actually not have any contact with anyone at all. No people. If I could get through this whole trip without speaking a word to another person, that in itself would be an interesting experiment. So I'm kind of excited about it. I'm going to make some changes to my van over the next couple of days. I'm going to move some cabinets around and, and tidy up some things. And then I'm going to hit the road with no pressure, no return date, and gratitude for having a very understanding wife. Well, I hope some of that can apply to your lives too. I hope you can find a way to hit the road sometime this summer. And I know some of you are on the road all the time and you're having a completely different experience. But hey, this virus thing is real. As much as we don't want it to be, we have to take it seriously. And we also owe it to ourselves to keep living our lives while we're going through this. And that's what I intend to do. Okay, Tech Talk. Let's talk about grounds. Not, not coffee grounds. This is another one of those very exciting things that we talk about on this show. 
No, I want to talk about that black wire that you have that's connected to everything you have electrical. The black wire. We spend a lot of time talking about the red wire, the one that connects to the power, the one that has the fuse on it, the one that does the magic. But the ground wire, that black one, often gets neglected. It's somehow thought of as lesser because it isn't the one that gets the fuse. Well, look, folks, <laughs> it's a circuit. They're both important. And if you skimp on one, you're skimping on the whole thing. So if you are new to cars and electrical systems and figuring out how they work, very basically, this is the very basic explanation, is there is a direct current battery under your hood. All batteries are direct current, but you know, you'll see what I mean. And there's a positive terminal and a negative terminal. And in almost all vehicles, the positive terminal goes to all of our controls. It goes to the fuse block, it goes to the lights, it goes to the horn, it goes everywhere and gives power. The black wire, the negative wire, goes straight into the body of the vehicle or the chassis, the metal part. And that turns the entire metal part of your vehicle into one big ground wire. That is an oversimplification. But that is basically how it is. And that's why we spend so much time on the red wires. Because the black wire is everywhere. It's the entire vehicle in most cases. Curiously, not in all cases. I used to work on Mack trucks way back in the 80s. Some of the trucks I worked on were old, like from the early 70s. And they had positive ground. They reversed it and made the entire vehicle positive And the important wires were negative. It didn't make a difference. It's arbitrary because it's a circle. Electricity, in this case, is going in a circle, a direct current from positive to negative. It doesn't matter how you do it. Just as a standard, we tend to do negative as the ground. Also, for some reason, horns tend to be ground switched. If you're, your horn in your car, the switch usually interrupts the ground, which I always thought was weird because then when you're in an accident, the horn can stay on very easily. I've probably gotten off topic. At any rate, the only thing I want to tell you is make sure that you use good quality ground wires and that they are firmly secured to a metal portion of your vehicle. Now, most people in the leisure area will attach a nice big thick ground wire to a known good ground point, and you can actually get guides for most vans that tell you where the known good ground points are. With aluminum being introduced into vehicles a lot more often, and alloys and stuff, it's not as simple as it used to be. There are parts of the vehicle that are better for grounding. Find one of those, and then you attach what's called a bus to that, and all your ground wires go to that bus. That's the best way to do it. It's, it's at least a good way to do it. So all I'm saying is don't skimp on your ground wire. It is important. And if you have too thin of a ground wire or your ground wire is making too little of a connection, you're going to see things like low voltage, intermittent activity from some of your appliances, and in some cases things just won't work. So ground is good. Okay, folks, this is the official product review of the Dometic 970 2.6-gallon portable toilet. Now, everybody who is new to van life, not everybody, but a lot of people, will automatically think of this as the solution for how to have a toilet. And this is your, your classic camping toilet with water. This thing flushes. It has two tanks. It has what is essentially a freshwater tank, although you're not going to drink this water. And it has a black water tank, which is what you flush into. It's very simple. 
And the idea is you will use this toilet as you would use your toilet at home, and then you will flush it. And voila, it's the same as at home. But of course, it isn't quite that simple. What this thing does is it, just, it, it doesn't actually flush. There is a valve that opens a hole and lets the stuff fall into the tank, which is at the bottom. It's all done with gravity. When you flush your toilet at home, it's water pressure that's pushing things along. In this thing, it's just gravity. So when you open that hole, it's, there's no pipe there. It's just a hole into the black tank, and that's it. And that's fine. And then the water rinses the bowl, and you're done. Now, in reality, when you use this, the first thing you're going to want to do is actually add some water to the bowl first, and there's a button to do that. On this model, you pump it up like you're pumping up a car tire. It actually has the pump built in. You go, and you pump it up, and then you press a button, and then water fills the bowl. It's very simple. You do your business, and then there's a lever in the front that you pull. Your business drops down, and you close it. And it would be nice to say, that's it, you're done. But unfortunately, because the bowl is plastic, it does need a little bit of maintenance usually. Uh, sometimes that involves using a spray bottle to kind of spray around. Other times you have to get in there with a napkin or something like that. It is just an unfortunate reality of all camping toilets. I don't think this one is any worse or better than any other for that. Now mine, I got the small one. It holds 2.6 gallons because... I don't need that much. This isn't something I'm going to be using regularly. But there's a drawback in that. If you get the 2.6 gallon rather than the other size, which is 5 gallons, it sits lower to the ground. Those extra gallons actually translate into height. And sitting on this thing for me, a 6 foot tall man, is like sitting on a cinder block. Maybe that's a more healthy posture. I don't know. But it is definitely awkward and takes a bit of getting used to. Also... Not to be too delicate here, but for men using this thing, the bowl is smaller. And it does require a bit of manipulation to get all of your necessary anatomy in the right place. Let me just say it like that. So some care is required. That said, it works. It's a perfectly good solution. It's nice and compact. It's portable so that if I set up a camp for any length of time, I have a tent and I can put it in the tent and make like my own little outhouse. That's great. As far as emptying it goes, this is a cassette toilet. So the top part of the toilet where the seat is detaches and a completely sealed bottom part looks like a, kind of looks like a suitcase. And I can carry that and empty it into a toilet or an outhouse or a Jiffy John or anywhere that is safe for black waste. I could use a dump station. That's fine. That works. I've done that many times. Uh, it is helpful to rinse it out if you can. And, I, and on the road, I don't always have a water source for that. So sometimes I'll bring water with me, but it's not essential. Now, what about chemicals? What do I use for chemicals? Tend not to use chemicals, believe it or not. I don't let it sit very long. And for water, this is a little strange, but bear with me. I don't actually fill the freshwater tank with water. I fill it with washer fluid, and you might think, well, that's odd, and it might be, but consider this, that makes it usable in the winter. Washer fluid doesn't freeze. It's relatively inexpensive, 
and it will flush things down just as well as water. I've done some research. There doesn't appear to be any harm to any seals or anything like that. It's, these things are pretty simple. There's really not that much going on there. So that's an option. You don't have to do that. If I have to refill this on the road, I'm certainly not going to fill it with washer fluid in the summer. But for next winter, I will add more. It's a fairly sturdy unit. It's nice and compact. It's attractive in as much as a toilet can be. And you can use it as a seat with the lid down if you want to. Um, I have mine hidden in my cabinet. It's actually completely invisible in my van. And then I open up basically a false front on a cabinet and the toilet comes out. Anyway, that's it. It works. It might be an option for you. They're kind of expensive though. Um, I bought mine for 97 bucks on Amazon last year and now they're up to 117. I think COVID is, is really screwing with pricing on a lot of things. Everything seems much, much higher. But this one or the five gallon, a totally reasonable solution. I know there are other solutions, some much cheaper, some much more expensive, but I am telling you that I am fine with this. It works and you can trust it. That is the Dometic 970 2.6 gallon camping toilet. Okay, a place to visit. Oh, so I'm, like I said, I'm going away, right? And I can tell you where I really want to go, and that is to Oregon. I really want to go to the coastal area of Oregon and to this place that is quite famous, you've probably heard of, called the Timberline Lodge. It's just too far away from Chicago to do on this trip, so I'm holding that off. But I'm going to channel it into recommending that you visit this place. You may not have heard of the Timberline Lodge, but it is a giant, massive lodge built during the Depression by the Civilian Conservation Corps. And it's done in this amazing style where everything is carved and beautiful. And you know what it looks like because you have probably seen the movie The Shining. That's right. This is the lodge from the movie The Shining. Not the inside. The inside is a completely different place. In fact, it was all made for the show. No, the outside. If you remember Danny getting out the bathroom window and sliding down the snow, that's where I'm talking about. It is really an impressive place. It is not creepy at all. Uh, if you're looking for creepiness, this isn't the place to go. But what a wonderful place to stay. Everything is just this feel of woods. It's like the, the place is made to match its environment. It's on a mountain. It's covered with woods. And yes, there's a ski resort there. But they have taken care not to modernize it too much. The rooms are crazy comfortable. They all have fireplaces and this wonderfully carved furniture. And I just love it. Look it up. Timberline Lodge. If you get a chance, go there. This has nothing to do with van life. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is just a cool place to go. I mean, you could go there and sleep in the parking lot in your van. I'm positive people do that. But if you do do that, please spend a night. It's expensive. This would be a treat. Also, make sure you visit the bar up on, I think it's the second or third floor, depending on how they count floors. They have some Shining-themed drinks, and it's a really, just really cool place. And there's a mystery in the bar. There's a very large window. It's a big picture window, which is fairly common these days. But in the 30s, this was a much bigger window than people were used to. And there's a mechanism attached to the window. I want you to go there and figure out what that mechanism's for, because it's actually an interesting piece of history and technology. So, folks, if you can, get to Timberline Lodge. I'll have a link in the show notes, but man, this place is, is famous and not that hard to see. 
and everybody I know who's been there has absolutely loved it. All right, I'm really excited about this. I, I thought about making this the actual main topic of the show because I'm that excited about it. This is a resource recommendation to write down or bookmark or save because if you're looking to buy a van, this is the best source I have found and I have been looking for a long time. You have heard of RVTrader.com. You have maybe heard of ConversionVanTrader.com. Maybe. I was thinking, well, why isn't there a site like this for commercial vehicles? <laughs> and guess what? <laughs> CommercialTruckTrader.com exists, and it's amazing. So that is CommercialTruckTrader.com. It's done by the people who do RVTrader.com. I found that my RVTrader.com login worked on their site, which tells you something. Thousands and thousands of vans, used vans, new vans, every kind of van you could want. I even found some pre-converted camping vans on there. I set myself some parameters. At the time, I was looking for an Econoline 150, and I set myself some pricing from like $5,000 to $15,000, something like 3,000 vans. It was unbelievable. There's so many vans that you're probably going to have a hard time choosing which one is best. You can search by distance, you can search by price, you can search by all the different characteristics of the van, engine size, does it have windows or not, all that kind of stuff. Really, I'm amazed that this isn't all over van life as like the place to, to get vans. And there's weird stuff in there too. Like they sell box trucks. So if you wanted to go the box truck route, this would be also a great resource for that. There are some ambulances, there are fire department support vehicles, some of which might make good RVs. And yeah, you can also get an excavator if you want, but that's probably not the best vehicle to convert. But uh, if you do, I want to see it. Really, commercialtrucktrader.com, well worth your time. Check it out. Again, commercialtrucktrader.com. Tales from the Road. Just a little quick tale here. Uh, Several episodes ago, I talked about Winter Island in Salem, Massachusetts as a unique spot for camping. Uh, It's a paid place. um, Not a great place if you're just going to try to boondock. But, uh, well, not a great place if you're just going to... Not a great place if you're going to try to stealth camp. But if you're willing to spend a little money, it's a really interesting place to spend the night in a van. So when I was a kid, though, this was just kind of no man's land. My first times out there, I actually had to, like, climb over a fence and explore these ruins, and it was totally trespassing. I was being an idiot, as most kids are, and, uh, but, you know, I have a lot of memories of that. And then later on, they opened it up so you could drive out there, but there wasn't much out there. For context, Winter Island has a history of being a fort since the 18th century, and the forts have changed and changed all the way up through World War II. There's a big airplane hangar on the base and a bunch of buildings and some subterranean ammo dumps and things. It's a lot to explore. And the hangar is interesting because there was no runway. The hangar was there for PBYs or seaplanes, and they were doing submarine patrols during World War II. So there was a big boat ramp, or actually a seaplane ramp, and planes would land in the harbor and then come up the ramp and go into the hangar, which was kind of a cool thing in and of itself. But you couldn't see the ramp from the big apron, the big concrete area in front of the hangar. And so I would play a trick on people. Again, I'm a kid. 17, 18, I've got a car. I would take people out there when they were visiting Salem and show them around and stuff. 
and then I would gun the engine and make it seem like we were going to drive off the edge of the apron into the ocean. And then right as we got to the edge, we'd be down the boat ramp and my passenger would hate me and I would giggle and that would be that gag. This is not something I would do today. And part of the reason I wouldn't do that today is because of what happened the last time I did this. Same situation, showing somebody around Salem. It was December, no snow yet, but the place is deserted. I go out there and I'm driving around and stuff. It's like, okay, it's time for the boat ramp trick. And I get over the edge and someone has taken all of their docks and decks and dragged them up the boat ramp for the winter. And of course I can't see them because they're down the boat ramp. And here I am doing maybe 30 miles an hour and I've got about 10 feet to stop. So I slam on the brakes slide sideways and just barely avoid smashing into these docks. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that was stupid. And I never did it again. And my passenger, well, she ended up marrying me as it turns out, but, uh, that changed years later and we are no longer married. (laughs) My current wife is not that wife, but if she was pissed at me for doing that, I absolutely cannot blame her one bit And I did end up taking her out to one of the nicest restaurants in town afterwards as a partial apology. So yeah, don't play stupid games with motor vehicles. It's not a smart thing to do. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to this episode 29. I absolutely appreciate each and every one of you listening every week or once in a while or however you do it. Music was by Simon Wagg, a.k.a. Sir Mouge. And until next week, remember, if you don't like the facts, you're the one that has to change. The facts aren't going to change. If you don't like the facts, you're the one that has to change. The facts aren't going to change. <laughs>